Welcome to this podcast sponsored by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide trainings to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. During this episode, All Hands on Deck, Rising Rates of STDs and Where to Go Next, we will be speaking with Dr. Bradley Stoner. Dr. Stoner is board certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases. He is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, where he specializes in clinical epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of sexually transmitted diseases. He served as Medical Director of the CDC-funded St. Louis STD and HIV Prevention Training Center and is also the past President of the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association, ASTDA. Welcome back, Dr. Stoner. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you back as a guest on our podcast series. You joined us two years ago to discuss the STD crisis in the U.S., and I'm glad that you're back to be able to tell us what's been going on since then. So first, can you tell us what the latest data for STIs looks like? Well, unfortunately, I don't have good news to report. STIs are up across the board, and those of us who work in the field are concerned about this. For example, let's take chlamydia. The national data for 2017 were just released by CDC last week, and in 2017 there were 1.7 million cases of chlamydia reported around the country. That is the highest number of infectious diseases reported for any condition in the U.S. in history. For gonorrhea, we had more than half a million cases, 555,000 in 2017, and primary and secondary syphilis, 30,000 cases, which is substantially lower but increased from the previous year. So we have our work cut out for us. Can you tell us how um, this has changed from what we saw two years ago? Well, I would say two years ago we were a little optimistic that we'd get a handle on rising rates of STDs, but unfortunately the rates have continued to climb. For example, from 2015 to 2017, syphilis went up 28%, gonorrhea went up 40%, chlamydia up 12%. So across the board, we've had increases in all three of the reportable bacterial STDs. I'd like to point out that there are a number of sexually transmitted infections which are not reportable conditions, for example, herpes and HPV, and these are probably also increasing as well. So we're at a moment in time when rates of STDs are rising, and it's concerning those of us who work on the public health side. Among the three reportable STDs, syphilis continues to be a major problem. Can you speak a little bit about changing syphilis epidemiology and its clinical presentation? I'm glad you asked about syphilis because it's one of the most important STDs. This is a disease that can cause long-term serious complications such as neurological impairment and vision loss. So early diagnosis and treatment are essential. We're seeing a few trends in syphilis right now. First of all, increasing rates in men who have sex with men. In fact, the rate ratio, that is the number of male cases to female cases, is about eight to one, which means for every female case, we'll see eight cases in men. This is also increasing primarily in its association with HIV infection. So at least half of the men who get syphilis nowadays in the U.S. are HIV infected. And the others who are not HIV infected are certainly at risk for acquiring HIV because these are twin epidemics that are co-occurring. What's happening with men who have sex with men is that we're seeing increasing rates in younger populations. So the highest rates of increase are now being seen in the 20 to 24-year-old and 25 to 29-year-old groups, which previously had not had high rates. And use of anonymous geospatial applications, what we call partner-finding applications on mobile phones and smartphones, 
is helping to spread the epidemic by allowing people to find partners that are not traceable through the usual contact tracing that health departments do. So anonymous sex partners and a decrease in safe sex practices in this population are a big concern. The interesting thing is with syphilis going up, HIV rates are actually going down. We've actually seen a decrease in the number of HIV infections across the board in the United States, which is good, but syphilis rates are on the rise. So that's a concern to all of us. Another thing that we've seen with syphilis for some reason, we don't quite know why, is increasing rates of syphilitic eye disease, or what we call ocular syphilis. And these are individuals who acquire syphilis and it invades the central nervous system and has a predilection for causing retinal disease and what we call iritis and vitritis. These are conditions that can cause vision loss, usually initially manifest as blurred vision, flashing lights, and we're seeing more and more of this in men who have sex with men, some of whom are HIV infected. So we're not really sure why that's true. Experts have looked at the strain of syphilis that's causing syphilitic eye disease, and it doesn't seem to be any different from the strains of syphilis that don't cause eye disease. So more research obviously needs to be done in that area. So rising rates in men who have sex with men, increasing rates of ocular syphilis, and the third trend that we're seeing is increasing rates of congenital syphilis. And this is a big concern because this is syphilis in pregnant women that pass the infection to their newborn child. While we have high rates of syphilis in men who have sex with men, we still have low levels of syphilis being transmitted heterosexually, and some women are acquiring syphilis and then getting pregnant, or either not getting identified as having syphilis during pregnancy, or they'll screen negative for syphilis early in pregnancy and then will acquire syphilis during pregnancy, leading to an infant that is born infected with syphilis. Many of these pregnancies don't even make it to term. In fact, 50% of syphilitic pregnancies end in miscarriage or child or stillbirth. But of the babies who do make it to term, they can be saddled with long-term neurological impairments and other health consequences, such as bone and tooth malformations later in life. So this is a serious condition that can be completely prevented through aggressive prenatal screening and treatment. Many women who are at risk for congenital syphilis don't have access to routine prenatal care. So CDC has put the word out for aggressive screening in pregnancy, early in pregnancy, and then again later, at, later in the pregnancy to identify women who may have acquired syphilis from the time of their first syphilis blood test. So these are some of the trends we're dealing with on the ground, and we're seeing increasing rates across the board. It is very concerning. I would agree. So that was about syphilis, but gonorrhea and chlamydia rates are also on the rise as well. What's most concerning about these conditions? I'm glad you asked about gonorrhea. This is a condition that causes burning on urination in men and sometimes vaginal discharge in women, but we're increasingly seeing asymptomatic disease in both men and women and also increasing rates of infection in what we call extragenital sites, that is, gonorrhea occurring in the rectum and in the oropharynx. So as our tests have gotten better, we're now using nucleic acid amplification testing, and these tests are being performed in genital as well as extragenital sites, and cases are increasingly being identified in these extragenital sites. What's really interesting in men who have sex with men is that most of the gonorrhea and chlamydia that we're seeing is actually extragenital, meaning that if you simply do a genital test or a urine test for gonorrhea or chlamydia, you're going to miss most of the gonorrhea and most of the chlamydia in this population because these infections are often asymptomatically carried in the oropharynx and the rectum. So it's really important to do what we call three-site testing, meaning a test in the oropharynx, in the rectum, and from the genital tract for people who have had exposures in these body parts. I think there's a sense among some clinicians that you can simply do a genital test, and that's a proxy for infection in the rectum and the pharynx, and that's simply not true. So gonorrhea rates are going up. Chlamydia rates are also on the rise, although there's primarily a chlamydia 
detection bias in women because of access to family planning services where there's a lot of chlamydia screening being done. So my guess is that we're missing a lot of chlamydia in men because we're not routinely looking for it. One of the projects we're working on here at Washington University at St. Louis, where I am on faculty, is in an emergency department detection of STIs. And we're looking at people who are coming to emergency departments, including our own at Washington University, but also others around our region for STD care because of the decrease in the number of STD clinics in the region. And we're seeing increasing rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia and also increasing levels of detection if we look for diseases in asymptomatic populations. So simply coming to the ER and having a gonorrhea and chlamydia test can detect STDs in people who are at risk, even if they are not having symptoms. We think that the ED may represent an important site for accessing populations at risk in settings where there are not robust public health facilities for patients to attend. Let me ask, what do we know about why these rates are increasing? Are some groups of people at higher, at greater risk than others? Certainly teens and young adults are the population at greatest risk. So we're seeing about 50% of all infections in the group aged 15 to 24. So very aggressive screening and outreach has to be targeted towards this group of people. I think we've lost a little bit of momentum in terms of our messaging around safer sex practices. One other group that I mentioned earlier that we're seeing rising rates of STDs in, particularly syphilis, is men who have sex with men. And some people argue that this is a consequence of improved HIV treatment and prevention strategies. You may be aware that there's ample evidence now that treatment of people who are HIV positive to reduce the viral load of HIV to undetectable levels leads to limited, if not zero, transmission of HIV to uninfected partners. This is called the U equals U movement, undetectable equals untransmittable. And this is the observation from a number of clinical studies that shows that people who are HIV infected can have their viral load suppressed through taking antiretroviral therapy and not transmit HIV to their sex partners in a number of studies in which this has been evaluated. I wanna say CDC has been a little bit circumspect about endorsing this because just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it couldn't happen. That is, somebody who does have a viral load that's undetectable could theoretically transmit but the reality is that they haven't seen any transmission events in people who are undetectable with their viral load. So the observation that HIV-infected people are taking medication and not transmitting HIV, coupled with the use of PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention among those who are HIV negative, that is, taking HIV preventative medication to prevent acquiring HIV if you are exposed, those two strategies together have led to decreasing rates of HIV infection in men who have sex with men but they're not really doing much to prevent syphilis and gonorrhea in that population. So some have argued that a decrease in safer sex practices as a consequence of improved HIV prevention strategies has led to increasing rates of STDs, and we need to do a better job of STD prevention and outreach. I would like to also add that simply not having access to healthcare could be an important component to all of this. People can get infected with any of these conditions and not have any symptoms. In fact, many of these conditions we're talking about have a large percentage of the population that are asymptomatic when they become infected. So as public health clinics decrease in number or increase user fees or have other kinds of barriers to accessing care, we're starting to see people who have had fewer and fewer abilities to be screened or opportunities to be screened for these STIs, and I think that's also contributing. So to summarize, young people, men who have sex with men, and then marginalized or economically disadvantaged population. And there may be overlap among these three risk groups, but those are the three areas where we're doing a lot of intervention and outreach to try to reduce rates and improve access to care. 
Let's talk a little bit more about drug-resistant gonorrhea. You raised this as a concern in our podcast two years ago. What kind of research or policy advancements have there been to address this problem, and what else can be done? When I think about this at our own medical school, I use the term multidrug-resistant gonococcal infection, MDRGC, to try to mobilize concern about this, just as we talk about multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. We really should be talking about multidrug-resistant gonococcal infection. All of the drugs that we've been using over the years to treat gonorrhea have eventually become resistant for treating the organism. You can go all the way back to penicillin in the 1940s and then the tetracyclines in the 1950s, and step-by-step step, you see increasing levels of resistance across the board to each one of these groups. We used to use a lot of fluoroquinolone antibiotics such as Cipro to treat gonorrhea, and that is no longer effective. And now we are stuck with really one class of drugs, the cephalosporins, treat gonorrhea. We cannot reliably count on any other class of drugs to treat it. So the CDC has strongly recommended dual treatment for several years. Dual treatment of anyone with gonorrhea with a cephalosporin antibiotic such as ceftriaxone along with an oral antibiotic as a second agent, typically azithromycin. Not because they may be co-infected with chlamydia, which was the rationale in the past, but because giving the second antibiotic will reduce selective pressure on the first antibiotic class. So preserving the integrity of the cephalosporin class of antibiotics by using a second agent is the strategy. Now everyone in the U.S. gets dual treatment with gonorrhea, uh, and we have impressive surveillance networks across the world to try to identify resistance as it occurs. And so we have some real-time outbreak notifications going on to identify high-level azithromycin resistance and high-level cephalosporin resistant strains as they emerge. There was one strain that came out of Japan that was resistant to ceftriaxone and it eventually was cured by using alternative antibiotics. But this required multiple injections over several days of medications, which have their own toxicity. And it's not going to be good strategy for widespread treatment of gonorrhea across the board. So we have seen that, we haven't seen that yet in North America, but we're concerned about it. There have been some cases of azithromycin resistance, high-level high level azithromycin resistant gonorrhea coming from the Far East, ending up in Hawaii. Uh, but those cases haven't quite made it to the mainland U.S. sites. So enhanced surveillance, I think, is part of our strategy. Additional research, I know that drug companies have started to investigate alternative therapies for gonorrhea. They're not quite ready for prime time. But I will tell you that the alternatives for drug-resistant gonorrhea are very, very limited. And we have to look back in our arsenal to medications from the 1960s to really address this. Specifically, genomycin, which is a drug that we've used for a long time to treat a variety of infections, and we got away from using it because it caused significant renal toxicity in some patients. It's now being mobilized as an agent for treating gonorrhea in patients who may be allergic to other medications. So this kind of enhanced surveillance and looking at alternative drug treatment regimens is really on the horizon. I will say one of the most exciting possibilities for future treatment of gonorrhea is use of real-time testing, point-of-care testing, to identify resistant strains and alternatively sensitive strains that we could use a previous class of antibiotics to treat. There's one research study in particular which shows that gonorrhea can be tested for Cipro resistance within a few hours, and patients could, if they have a Cipro-sensitive strain, be adequately treated with ciprofloxacin uh, as they have routinely been done in the past. But that's not ready for prime time use yet, and I would think all of these things are really sort of on the horizon as research possibilities. Nevertheless, our gonorrhea rates are going up, so we need to continue to aggressively screen and aggressively treat patients. Let's talk a little bit about expedited partner therapy. 
Have there been any new advancements in expedited partner therapy? Have more states legalized it in the past two years? Well, as you know, expedited partner therapy is the delivery of medication to patients who are named as partners of individuals diagnosed with sexually transmitted infections. The ideal situation is if a person has an STD, the partner should be notified and should come into the clinic for examination and treatment. The reality is that many of those partners are reluctant to come into the clinic. They don't have time, they don't have transportation, and expedited partner therapy is an opportunity to then provide medication to them. We know that they've been exposed. They may very well be the source case for the patient that we've just diagnosed in our clinical setting. And either giving medication to the patient that you've diagnosed to take to his or her partner, or calling in medication to a pharmacy on behalf of that partner is an example of expedited partner therapy. It's been mobilized in many states across the country with great success, but there's been some resistance in some states usually due to legal barriers because of the lack of a bona fide physician-patient relationship between the prescriber and the partner. In other words, I'm the doctor, I'm seeing the patient with the disease, and now I'm being asked to write a prescription for a partner who I've never seen before. And if there's any kind of liability associated with that, there may be some concern about the doctor writing that prescription. Most states have now overturned those barriers, and we're at a point now where we have 46 out of 50 states in which expedited partner therapy is either legal or potentially available. In other words, there are no legal barriers to its use in those states. There are still four states in which expedited partner therapy remains illegal, and the CDC is working with state and local health departments to try to overturn those barriers. So I will just end that discussion by saying that there's not one size solution, there's not a one size fits all solution to this problem. And we're going to see more and more states using expedited partner therapy but it's not going to be the only thing that solves the STD crisis. It's certainly another arrow in our quiver, if you will, of tools that we can use to fight STDs. So where are we going with STD prevention in the United States? What does our future look like? I would say, first of all, we need more aggressive screening. We need to do a better job of reaching populations at risk. And I think things like school-based clinics, going where the disease is rather than waiting for the disease to come to us, really has to be our strategy. We know that adolescents and young adults are at greatest risk for STDs, so we should go where they are, increase our outreach activities. School-based clinics, mobile screening activities, opportunities for screening in field settings, we find that whenever those are done as demonstration projects, we find very high rates of STDs. I want to point out that in public health, we think of a prevalence of 5% as being very high in a population. If you do a screening test in a population and you find prevalence of 5% or greater, you could say there's a high prevalence of that condition in the population. This could be diabetes, cholesterol, hypertension, whatever it is you're looking for, 5% is kind of a cutoff. But when we screen for STDs, particularly in adolescents, we're seeing rates of 10%, 12%, 15%. And it's almost a public health crisis, and it's hard for us to really understand why there isn't more public concern about these conditions. I think part of it is the stigma associated with sexually transmitted infections. These are conditions people get because they don't protect themselves. They don't behave properly, and I think there's a concern, a moralistic concern among some, that this may be their own fault. But as a public health physician, I can tell you that sometimes it's just bad luck. People are in bad circumstances, and they just get exposed to these conditions, and we need to destigmatize them and do a better job of screening and outreach. I think coupled with that, we have to be more vocal and aggressive about the need for greater treatment options. We're still using penicillin to treat syphilis, which is totally fine for syphilis, but penicillin is no longer effective for gonorrhea or for chlamydia, and it's conditions for which we really don't have a lot of biomedical research investing a lot of money into identifying new treatments. 
So advocacy for greater research around the biology and treatment strategies and also prevention strategies. I think if we had more STD vaccines, that would be a great advance because prevention is always much more effective than cure. Right now, we have HPV vaccine and also hepatitis B. People forget that hepatitis B can be sexually transmitted, but that's about it in terms of STD vaccines, and I think we really need to be looking at the future of STD prevention in terms of vaccine research. So those are areas I think are really important. Greater outreach to communities at risk, greater advocacy for biomedical research, and particularly focusing on vaccines and prevention strategies in the future. Dr. Stoner, that was my last question. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. For our new listeners to listen to other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, www.ctcfp.org, or call us at 1-866-91-CTCFP for more information. A transcript of today's podcast is available for download on our website. Thank you again for joining us.